Welcome to Divorce Explained, the podcast where we answer your questions and navigate the process of divorce together. Sharing real stories and personal experiences, this is your guide through it all. With your hosts, family law specialist Steve Benmore and divorce lawyer and strategist Leanne Townsend. Great topic today because it's such an important one. Uh, you know, the matrimonial home, uh, which comes up in you know most family law cases, and uh, it's a very important asset. It's usually people's most valued asset, and there's lots of rights and obligations and things like that that flow from it. So I think it's a great topic to cover. Absolutely. So let's start with educating our viewers on. What is this thing called a matrimonial home? Some people don't understand. They confuse it with other terms. In the Income Tax Act, there's a term called a principal residence. A principal residence under tax law is the home that you own and occupy as a family. Uh, you, each Canadian is allowed one principal residence. And when you sell it, you don't pay tax on it. That has nothing to do with family law. In family law, on the other hand, a matrimonial home is defined in Section 18 of the Family Law Act, and it is defined as the family residence that the couple lived in at the time of their separation. And you can actually have, unlike a principal residence, multiple matrimonial homes. And so some people will have their Toronto home as their matrimonial home, their Muskoka cottage as their matrimonial home, their Collingwood ski chalet, and their Florida condo all as matrimonial homes. And what qualifies each as a matrimonial home is did you ordinarily occupy it at the time of separation? And even though you might have split up while you're up in Collingwood skiing in February, um, but your Toronto home, your Florida condo, and your Muskoka cottage could all at the same time serve as a matrimonial home. And why is this so important, Leanne? Why do we want to designate or not designate something as a matrimonial home? Well, certain rights um, flow from the matrimonial home and the matrimonial home has certain protections um, and it's treated differently than other forms of property or assets that uh, somebody might have when they're going through separation and divorce. And so one of those rights is a right to possession. And so, um, you know, if something is a matrimonial home, the other, you know, one of the parties cannot just go and change the locks, for example, um, and lock the other person out because they want to get them out of there. Um, and they can't just kick them out. And so, um, there, you know, in, in order to get them out there, there's procedures and you'd have to bring a motion for exclusive possession. And there's a whole bunch of things if they don't want to leave. So, you know, that's a very, very important right that um, distinguishes it from, you know, a, like a, if you had a business property or something like that. Um, so that's number one. And then it's also treated um, financially, it can be treated slightly differently on in terms of equalization and, and calculating net family properties. Um, because for example, if um, I decided to buy the matrimonial home and I bought it in you know, my name while we were married, um, I, if I had bought an investment property, well, I shouldn't say that, just go back to the matrimonial home. If I bought a, a matrimonial home while we were married and it's in my name, um, the my partner, if we're married, could have well, some rights to an equalization payment based on the value of the home. So for example, if the home was valued at a million dollars, 
and I didn't have, you know, other assets and liabilities, um, you know, that my partner could result it would be allowed to have pursuant to the law an equalization payment of half that value if we separate it now there's a whole bunch of other things that can come into play so just to clarify but, for the benefit of the viewers and this is really important leanne you touched on something really important there are a lot of people that get married after they already owned a home or a condo and when they get married and their new partner moves in to the home or condo that they lived beforehand and then they live there until the time of their separation. Some people think, well, I only have to share the increase in the value. Uh-uh-uh. Once that property becomes the family residence, and that's the property that you live in on the day of separation, the total equity in that home is subject to equalization, or to put it in very blatant terms, the owner might have to pay half of the value of that property to their ex at the time of separation. However, if instead of living in that house, they moved into the condo across the hall and rented it, then you only share in the increase. And that's a mammoth delta, mammoth disparity. Sorry, Leanne, go back to you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's a great way of explaining it. And I think that, um, you know, people who come into a marriage, um, with you know a disparity in assets and maybe where their one is in a position to purchase a home or pad a home you know prior to the marriage um it is just a much more complicating factor than as they say with other types of assets so it's important that if you're in that type of situation that perhaps you do speak to a lawyer uh beforehand before getting mar married and see if a marriage contract might be something that you're interested in having to you know offer you some protection with respect to the, the matrimonial home um, and where things can get interesting too I had a, a client um, a while back and the matrimonial home was in her name um, but the, the husband had largely paid for it he had put it into her name for some creditor protection reasons and um, and then they'd separated and they were separated for quite a number of years before they they reached the settlement and um, you know, she had hoped that because the home was just in her name and the value on, and it had gone up significantly since the valuation date, that she would be able to capture um, that extra increase just herself because it was after the date of separation. But because of the circumstances where he had been the one to actually pay for it and, and whatnot, he argued that um, I commonly had a constructive trust or an unjust enrichment argument. And so he should get his share, um, you know, essentially half of that value increase as well. Um, but it, you know, it is interesting because we do value everything for equalization um, as of the date of separation. So the matrimonial home can be something with, you know, significant value increases post separation that can also cause parties to argue about what the actual date of separation is at times. So as to not cause more confusion to our viewers, I want to, <laughs> I want to go back to what you just said and be very clear about it. So a matrimonial home is a home that you lived in at the date of your separation. If that property was in the wife's name and they split up three years ago when it was worth a million dollars and today, and they haven't settled yet, it's worth 1.3 million, wife would have argued 
I only have to split $1 million, not 1.3. It went up by 300,000. And in Leanne's case, husband said, uh-uh-uh, I kept on paying the bills for all these years from the time that it was worth a mil to the time that it's worth 1.3. And I want half of 1.3, I want 650. So first of all, for those that are watching, go to canley.org and then keyword search the court of appeal decision called Corman v. Corman, K-O-R-M-A-N, which stands for the proposition that when one, parent, one spouse puts the property in the name of one person, as opposed to the both of them, um, it can be considered being held in trust for both of them so that the post-separation rise in value is shared. The so read Corman and Corman. Now, the question is, the fact that husband paid the bills on the property between date of separation and now, does that somehow give him a stronger claim? I would say it probably gives him a stronger claim, <clears throat> but he had a claim anyway. Yeah, now, no, exactly. The other issue is joint ownership. And what Leanne said for the benefit of our viewers is that where there's sole ownership, it's the, it's the valuation, it's the separation that determines the equalization subject to what I just said a minute ago. But joint ownership of assets surpasses the separation date because that means that both parties owned the property, whatever the property might be. It could be, it could be a car, it could be an investment portfolio, it could be the house. So we're not valuing it on the date of separation. We're valuing it on the date of the buyout by one spouse of the other. And if people don't do a deal right after separation on a joint asset and the value changes, either going down or up, then you could be facing a situation where you're going to pay uh, either more or receive less. And some people have already called me in the last couple of days and said, our house is worth $2 million, but I'm afraid it might actually go down in value in the next year or two with the issue of inflation and the rate hikes by the Bank of Canada. And if that $2 million property, which is in my name, says the client, goes down to 1.9, do I have to pay my ex half of 2 million, even though I'm only sitting on an asset worth 1.9? It's a good question. It's a very yeah. good question. So be careful. Best advice, like Leanne said, is don't delay the resolution of your family law affairs when you split up. Speed it through it. I can't tell you how many times I meet people that tell me they split up three, four, five years ago and they haven't settled their affairs yet because it was too painful or, or too problematic or, or whatnot. Um, but, you know, there's a consequence to the delay. And the consequence can be that you're going to pay more or receive less. And one of the complicating factors that sometimes comes up, and this was something right at the heart of the trial that I just had recently, is where one spouse wants to buy the other spouse out of the matrimonial home. And, um, you know, in this particular case, there was a lot of animosity and a lot of conflict between the two parties. And there was a family run business on the property of the matrimonial home as well. So it was a particular value um, to, to my client. But because of the level of animosity the other party the wife she really didn't want to sell it to him there had been a history of it in her family she didn't want to really sell it to him and so um, over the course of three years he made multiple offers to to buy it and she was refusing to sell it to him and one of the things that you know is complicated and that viewers may not know is that a court cannot force uh, your ex to sell the matrimonial home to you.
they can they can a court a judge can order that the house be sold on the open market and you can bid on it like any other member of the public out there on the you know and bid fair market price and all and of that. And pay a real estate commission. Yep, but the, the judge cannot order that your spouse sell it to you. And that there's a lot of fights that get created over that situation. And, you know, in my particular case, like when we were talking about having it sold on the market, my client was like, well, can't I get an advantage? And how am I, you know, and I was like, no, you can't because it's not fair to members of the public who come in and want to bid on it. You can't have an advantage over them. It has to be a fair playing field. And so a lot of complications can arise in that situation. So it's much better if, you can't if you really do want to buy your spouse out that you can come to an agreement offer something fair and and not force you know litigation over it and in fact so many of these cases are driven by emotion so one spouse will refuse to sell to the other spouse simply because they don't want to give the other person some sort of advantage over them some people choose not to sell it to their spouse because they think if they do so it will therefore create some advantage with respect to the parenting plan because the kids will want to stay in the home and not visit the other parent who's not living in the home as much. And at the end of the day, some people think, well, you know what, why would I sell it to him or her when I can get more on the open market? And even with a commission payable, I'll still end up with, I'll net out more than if I sold it to him or her for whatever it is that they're offering. So those are various reasons why people will not be able to do a deal. And once it's in the hands of a judge, what you said, Leanne, is 100% true, which is the judges have no power to let one spouse buy it from the other. And rather, what they do is they force it on the open market. And then the other spouse not only has to bid against it with other people, the other spouse doesn't even have the right to see those offers that are coming in before that spouse puts in their own offer. And there's been a whole line of cases that say that. And a lot of people can't understand. How is that the case? I'm the owner. And yes, I'm the owner and I'm the prospective buyer. As the owner, I want to see the other offers first. Yeah, that was what my client struggled with. And in the end, we ended up, he was able to buy it from her as part of the settlement, but um, he did end up having to pay a bit of a premium um, for that because that's the only way she was going to sell it to him. Um, another thing too that I think we should mention to viewers that comes up with uh, often with the matrimonial home is people will sell it, but then they haven't um, like resolved their, their family law issues. So what happens is the proceeds end up in a lawyer's, often, often the real estate lawyer, but a lawyer's trust account. And I've seen situations where millions of dollars have sat in a lawyer's trust account for years because the parties can't agree. And the only way the money's going to be released is on agreement of the parties or by court order. And while you can get partial distributions for various things, um, I just think it's a really sad thing when you see people, you know, living hand to mouth and in some small cramped space because they don't have any money because all their money is sitting in trust. So they can't go and buy a new home for them and their children to live in. Yeah, it's exactly it. I'm going to actually further stressed your, your statement, Leanne, by a case that I just settled recently where um, the parties owned a cottage and they were jointly uh, titled on the cottage. And um, let's just make a round number. The net equity in the cottage was $500,000. I represented the wife. The wife was claiming that the husband owed her about a $400,000 equalization payment. Husband was using strategy to force the wife into a settlement. What do I mean by that? Wife wanted to keep the cottage. 
she wanted to keep the cottage in the family for the kids. Husband knew that. Husband knew that by forcing the sale of the cottage, wife would capitulate and give up a lot of rights in order to avoid the sale. So husband kept on pushing, pushing, pushing this motion for the sale of the cottage. And, and I successfully argued in front of a judge that the, if, the, if he has the right to sell the cottage, I gave that to the judge off the top, and that um, if the cottage were to be sold, that money would go into trust, and it would remain there until the wife's equalization claim of $400,000 was addressed in a year or two from now. And I said to the judge, if you order the sale of the house right now, all you're going to accomplish is the following. You're going to liquidate the house, pay off the mortgage, put the money into a real estate lawyer's trust account, and that money, that $500,000, will not grow because it, there will be no interest on it. And even if you were to put it into a GIC for 90 days rollable, what are you going to get? A point? A point and a half? I said, Your Honor, if the money remains in the cottage, not sold, either until trial or until they reach an agreement, then both parties will benefit because if that property goes up even by 1%, because it's worth a million dollars, if it goes up by 1%, it goes up by $10,000. And if it goes up by 2%, it goes by $20,000. For the house to not be sold until they figure out their affairs, then to force it and liquidate it now, where all you're really gonna do is you're gonna guarantee a real estate commission and guarantee the loss of the funds due to inflation and the reduction of their net value. So the judge agreed with me and did not order the sale of the home because wow. it really made sense that it was actually to their both benefit to not sell. Oh, that's great. That's a great argument. I'm glad the judge uh, listened to it because I mean, all those points are true, right? You're not saying anything that's not exact, you know, is exactly, it's all true and uh, you know, makes sense. But that's in, in my experience that that's a hard, uh, a hard order to get. To make. And yeah. for the benefit of our viewers, some of the very like morally correct arguments that fail are as follows. One, we've lived in this house for 20 years. Yes, we're both on title. The children live in this house. Don't force the sale. I'll buy it. Let me buy it. Don't put it on the market. Dismissed. Judge can order it to be sold on the open market and judges do. Reason number two, the children are emotionally connected to this house. This is where they grew up. They have their bedrooms here. Not given much weight. That child has special needs and it would be very disruptive to this child with ADD, ADHD, anxiety, autism to have to relocate. Rarely is that given the time of day. Why pay a real estate commission when I could buy it and save ourselves a real estate commission? Not acceptable. So these are all really good arguments that if you were in the court of public opinion, you would win. But in the court of law, where the Partitions Act applies, and it says black and white, if you're the joint owner of a property, you can force the sale, and there are very few exit ramps that can avoid the sale of that property. Yeah, so uh, can, you know, consider yourself uh, informed of that if you're out there and you uh, have joint ownership and uh, you think that's going to be an issue. So thanks, Steve. Um, I think we've covered the key points on this topic that we needed to cover. And uh, it's great to be back. It's great to see our viewers again. And I look forward to joining everyone next week uh, here on Divorce Explained. Beautiful. Take care, Leanne.
Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Divorce Explained. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to head on over to Instagram and follow at Steve Benmore and at Leanne Townsend Life for more. And if you're looking for specific divorce services, you can visit benmore.com and leannetownsend.ca. We hope today's episode made you feel informed and inspired as you move along through your divorce journey. Tune in next week for Divorce Explained.